Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists. And I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. Adverse drug reactions are not uncommon in pediatric patients. We find them in about 1.5% of pediatric outpatients, leading to the cause of up to 10% of pediatric hospitalizations. Among hospitalized pediatric patients, almost 17% experience adverse drug reactions. As you can see, the frequency and nature of these adverse reactions make it so they are certainly worthy of study and an attempt at better understanding who is at greatest risk of experiencing them in order to hopefully prospectively reduce the overall potential for adverse drug reactions in children in the future. In spite of federal legislation passed in 2002 and 2003 that were instrumental in advancing knowledge of medications in pediatric patients, we still find that about 50% of medications labeled for use in the United States lack food and drug administration labeling in children. About 65% of medications used in critically ill neonates lack labeling for their age group. And an even higher percentage, 89% of critically ill pediatric patients receive at least one medication during their hospital stay that does not contain pediatric labeling for their condition. So other than the uncomfortably high occurrence of adverse drug reactions in children that should draw our interest, we find an overall relative paucity of pediatric medication studies that have been conducted with which to characterize this problem. This presents clinicians with the unfortunate dilemma of having to use medications without fully understanding the risks involved. Certainly, specific attention is needed at this time to more clearly understand the unique characteristics of children and the relationship of medication adverse drug reactions. However, where do we start probing such a large and complex problem? How do we begin to identify which medications carry a higher risk of adverse drug reactions in pediatric patients? Perhaps we should begin with a reference that can be easily accessed, pardon that, by sharp-end medical practitioners that clearly outlines which medications should be avoided in all or a subpopulation of pediatric patients, and even more detailed, perhaps some specific clinical settings in which they should be avoided. Okay, beginning with a list of medications that should potentially be avoided for in some or all of the pediatric population is not a new concept. Every pediatric clinician, whether they have uh, thought about it much or not, maintains a list of medications in their head that bears some amount of caution in the patients they are treating, though not all lists are created equal. The lists that some practitioners use are well-informed by university or residency training. Some are evidence-based, 
and some are gained through unfortunate personal therapeutic misadventure and experience. And still others are learned through passive transmission uh, among colleagues. Simple logic would suggest that where there's variability between practitioners, some will be closer to the actual truth and others will be further from it. Maintaining this type of diversity carries with it an inherent risk um, in a form of mediocrity that some practitioners will inevitably carry with them an inferior list. And so it's with that thought in mind that the kids list began as an idea that high risk medications should be compiled together in one place and created from the best information available, standardizing the perspective among those who work in pediatric practice. Back when I was a first, a, a new pharmacist, I kept thinking that someone with more experience than I should publish a list like this, but years passed by and no list was ever published. Over that time, I focused on training new learners about the drugs that I thought were important. Generations of new pharmacy students that came into my pediatrics rotation got their first assignment on day one. Uh, and that was, think of at least five medications that you should consider avoiding in pediatric patients and why, so the mechanism of why. Well, uh, fast forward a couple of decades now, I finally resolved at that time that I was gonna write a paper myself because no one had done it. The publication of the Beers criteria for the elderly had come and gone, and it was time that something was done for pediatric patients. Though, as with other publications I've done these last few years, I wanted to use the project as an opportunity for one of my interns or residents to become involved. R.C. Halinga was our PGY2 resident at the time, and I asked him early in the year uh, if he would be interested in co-authoring uh, the paper with me. He took me up on the challenge, and I was very pleased when he began uh, the work in earnest later in his residency year. R.C. produced the initial draft and titled it The Cuddle List because he was looking for an endearing pediatric name. I reviewed his work, and while it was good, I began thinking that the approach required significant refinement. We really needed to bring it to the highest level possible. I was in the leadership of the Pediatric Pharmacy Association at the time and floated the idea to uh, as a board-endorsed initiative, one that was done scientifically, thoroughly, and with experts in each major area of pediatric pharmacy. The board agreed, and I began assembling the team from those that were recommended. In total, three years elapsed from the time the project that was commissioned by the PPA board until it was published in the Journal of Pediatric Pharmacology and Therapeutics. This slide shows you where you can find the publication. It, it's open source, it's free. That's the best kind of article that I know, free. You'll also be able to find it through keyword searches and popular search engines, just by typing in kids list and, and uh, maybe um, adverse drug reaction. The kids list is meant to be a reference tool to decrease adverse drug reaction risk in pediatric patients. The list can be used to evaluate and enhance the quality of care in pediatric patients. It can be used for medical learners and experienced clinicians alike for training and alignment. It must be mentioned that the kids list is a guideline and not a rule. Depending on individual clinical 
situations, there will be circumstances when the use of any number of the medications on the list might be appropriate. The list can be integrated into hospital or clinic policies, considered when making formulary decisions, used when undergoing clinical monitoring, and even embedded into the electronic medical record systems to reduce the risk of pediatric adverse drug uh, events. The list is likely going to reduce the cost of care as well through avoidance of adverse clinical outcomes and possibly a reduction in hospital admissions, though that would remain, of course, uh, to be seen through future research. So uh, the list can also serve as a reference point for conducting future research on clinical outcomes, training, and as, as I mentioned, cost. The final kids list publication highlights 67 individual medications or medication classes, as well as 10 excipients that are associated with an increased risk of adverse drug reactions in pediatric patients. The publication is endorsed by several multidisciplinary associations. As I mentioned earlier, the authors, we used the World Health Organization definition of adverse drug reaction. We limited consideration to patients less than 18 years of age and to medications where a safer alternative uh, was available. All medical literature searches were conducted using standardized search terms and the keywords listed here on this slide. We employed the PRISMA strategy to identify key manuscripts on which to base our recommendations and the GRADE approach to classify our recommendations. The term avoid was used to indicate a strong recommendation where caution was used to indicate a reaction with a lower value proposition. The strength of recommendation in the manuscript ranged from strong to weak based on the likelihood that most informed clinicians will choose to follow the recommended course of action. In order to better define the scope of the project, our team chose to limit consideration to currently available medications in the United States marketplace. Adverse drug reactions needed to be clearly attributed to the medication or excipient in the medical literature. A safer therapeutic alternative must be available, otherwise the medication was not added to the list. As mentioned earlier, an adverse reaction needed to occur in patients younger than age 18 years, and the incidence frequency or severity of the reaction needed to be greater in the pediatric population compared with the adult population. A number of types of drugs and nutrients were prospectively defined as exclusion criteria, as were teratogenic events, allergic reactions, and adverse reactions arising from dosing issues alone. Our team identified medications for consideration through a systematic literature review. Uh, we reviewed Food and Drug Administration pediatric safety communications. Uh, we screened the LexiComp database and we brought our own lists, our own individual expert opinion of the panel members themselves. 
each identified title that, that came out of the literature review was reviewed by at least two members of the Kids List expert panel for consideration and promotion to the next phase in the project. Only one member from the review team needed to affirm acceptance for a manuscript to move forward in the process. Additional literature ser searches were conducted until the panel had the primary literature with which to base the strength and quality of recommendations for every medication considered for adoption into the list. At the final stage of review, the full panel debated the relative merits and drawbacks of inclusion of every drug before it was added to the kids list. Discussions were based on primary literature. A draft publication and list was then exposed to expert review from a multidisciplinary group of pediatric practitioners, both within and external to the Pediatric Pharmacy Association. The manuscript was revised as needed based on the author panel discussion of comments received. Following this process, the membership of the Pediatric Pharmacy Association was provided a one month open comment period before the final publication was, um, was endorsed by the Pediatric Pharmacy Association board and then published in JPPT. A lot of steps there. This slide shows the number of medications identified by each type of search method of origin. The majority of medications were identified through the LexiComp database and a full PubMed literature search with fewer uh, drugs being identified uh, through expert panel opinion and FDA pediatric safety communications review. From these initial groupings, um, it, it went through the process of at least one uh, member from the panel agreeing that it should be moved on. And, and the, 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 these here uh, were considered for final review uh, for inclusion into the, into the kids list. And so what we ended up was six, 67 drugs, drug classes, and 10 excipients. And I'm gonna show you one now. So this slide, I'm, um, this slide shows you uh, an example of benzocaine. Um, this, uh, this is a medication on the kids list with a strong strength of recommendation and a high quality of evidence. Benzocaine is responsible for 119 published reports of methemoglobinemia and four deaths in pediatric patients. Our team feels strongly that benzocaine should be avoided in the outpatient setting for the treatment of teething pain or pharyngitis in pediatric patients. This recommendation is consistent with the American Academy of Pediatrics. This slide shows the example of camphor. We believe this medication should be used with caution in children due to the risk of seizures. The strength of recommendation is weak because the quality of evidence is low. This is also recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Now I will turn it over to Rachel uh, to show you how the kids list can be used in some practice-based examples. She will attempt to dispel some historical dogma for you and will provide a vision for how we can move forward with the kids list to better understand how we can characterize the risk of adverse reactions with specific medications in pediatric patients. Rachel, take it away.
Thanks, Dave. We wanted to review some examples from the kids list and how it might affect your day-to-day -day practice. So first we'll discuss codeine. Most of you are probably familiar with the FDA's warning about codeine use in children. For those who aren't, a small percentage of the population are what's known as CYP2D6 ultra-rapid metabolizers. This means that they convert codeine to morphine at a much faster rate than other people. This rapid conversion to morphine can cause respiratory depression, and there have been cases of deaths. For this reason, the FDA requires a black box warning for codeine, and it is now contraindicated for the treatment of pain or cough in children younger than 12 years. And there is a warning for adolescents aged 12 to 18 years who are obese or who have obstructive sleep apnea or other respiratory disorders that put them at elevated risk. When the authors of the kids list considered the data on codeine, we recognized that the adverse effects are seen in those ultra rapid metabolizers. And someone with a more common phenotype would not be as at risk for this effect, as long as the dose used was within normal limits. Some hospitals and clinics have the capability of running that pharmacogenetic testing, and thus a patient's CYP2D6 phenotype may be determined. In, this, in these situations, the drug bait may be used safely. Thus, we recommend it against its use in children unless that testing is conducted. When considering whether to use it at your hospital, the availability of pharmacogenetic testing should definitely play a part. However, you must consider whether that testing occurs for all patients or just a select few. And if it's only a select few, how will you prevent its use in those with an unknown phenotype? Another thing to consider is whether you work at a standalone children's hospital or a hospital which also serves adults. In my case, I took a look at where codeine was being used, and there was a lot of use in my adult population. So we decided to do a lot of education amongst our pediatric practitioners at my hospital, and we removed it from the automated dispensing cabinets on the pediatric units. We're currently working on cleaning up our order sets as we prepare to transition to a new EMR system and preventing kids list drugs like this one from being included on those order sets. This again is a good example of where integrating warnings into the EMR can also prevent these drugs from being ordered for patients in certain age groups. Now we'll talk about sodium phosphate enemas. Sodium phosphate enemas are a commonly used solution for constipation. However, per the kids list and an FDA warning, they should be avoided in children younger than two years of age. Note here that in the kids list, our definition of infants is younger than 24 months of age. So just note that our definitions for ages are a little different than um, some others, but do align with a common definition of infants. So again, 24 months of age. The risk here with the sodium phosphate enemas is based on serious events from case reports, which included death. It's a good idea to ensure that practitioners have access to a list of alternative, available alternatives, especially if they are adult practitioners who are, say, floating into your pediatric emergency department overnight. Um, so alternatives might be mineral oil enemas, glycerin suppositories, and obviously oral options such as docusate, senna, and polyethylene glycol. Now we'll talk about lansoprazole. Lansoprazole is actually not itself on the kids list. Uh, it has long been compounded for use in neonatal populations, but also occasionally uh, for older children or adults with gastrostomy tubes, as the solutabs are known to sometimes clog those tubes. Recently, a compounding kit for lansoprazole liquid became available, and my hospital was interested in acquiring it due to its ease of use and the standard preparation. 
While this sounds like an easy decision, we have to consider the population that it will be used in, and upon reading the list of ingredients, I found that benzyl alcohol was included. It can be easy to forget to check for this, since we're used to looking for it in intravenous medications. I did a few dose calculations and determined the amount of benzyl alcohol that an infant would receive at our institution and found that the amount of benzyl alcohol they would receive with that dose would be in the safe range. So we did end up acquiring this product. I do want to note, there's just a small error. This is from table two in the kids list, not table one. And it's just a good reminder to always check those inactive ingredients, especially for products that we're going to use in that neonatal population. Now we'll talk about caffeine, another um, benzyl alcohol example. So let's consider the caffeine products that most hospitals carry. First, we have caffeine citrate, which we use, of course, for apnea of prematurity. There's also caffeine benzoate, often used for treatment of postural puncture headed headaches. Caffeine benzoate contains a one-to-one -one ratio of caffeine to sodium benzoate, and this product should never be used for apnea of prematurity. Some hospitals, in particular standalone children's hospitals, have considered removing caffeine benzoate from formulary in order to eliminate the risk that the products would be confused. For those hospitals who need the caffeine benzoate for the use in the adult population, several safety steps may be taken. The location of compounding and dispensing should be taken into consideration. For example, at my hospital, we have a NICU satellite from which medications are dispensed 16 hours a day. Since caffeine is only given once daily, we schedule it during a day shift and we only keep caffeine citrate in our satellite and we don't store caffeine uh, benzoate there at all. Tall man lettering, barcoding, and again, those EMR restrictions are other methods of keeping these different salts separate. Now we move on to one of my favorite examples, which I always try to teach my students on my rotation, dexamethasone. This is another example of a problematic excipient. As many of you know, this time of year tends to bring infants and toddlers with croup to our emergency departments. The usual steroid of, cho of choice is a one-time dose of dexamethasone 0.6 milligrams per kilo. New residents and adult practitioners floating in the pediatric emergency department are often quick to order dexamethasone liquid, but unfortunately, the product that is commonly carried at hospitals is a 0.1 milligram per milliliter elixir, which is 5% alcohol. While the kids list limit is a maximum of 5% and that this obviously falls within that range, the problem is compounded by the volume needed due to the dose that we need. So to give you an easy example, a 10 kilogram child would require a dose of six milligrams and at a concentration of 0.1 milligram per ml, that would be equivalent to 60 mLs of the elixir. With that volume of 5% ethanol, we're talking about the adult equivalent of 1.2 beers, which is probably not what you want to give a kid with croup in the emergency department. And you'll also probably discover that 60 mLs is a nearly impossible volume to administer to a toddler. Um, that pretty much is not going to happen. <laughs> because the dosage form is inadequate, creative pediatric practitioners have been using the intravenous dexamethasone product, specifically the 4 milligram per ml or the 10 milligram per ml vials for these children. If you're using that 10 milligram per ml concentration, that 60 milligram dose is now 0.6 mLs. And while this medication is intended for intravenous use and therefore not flavored, we find that it's not that problematic because that volume is so small. Now, currently, we are faced with an intravenous dexamethasone shortage. 
Thus, many emergency departments are considering what they will use instead. The elixir is, of course, out. If the dose can be rounded to tablets, we could use them and crush them. And the final option is to use a different steroid, such as prednisolone liquid, which unfortunately also contains alcohol, though in much smaller amounts, and requires multiple doses, thus necessitating a prescription for home. Right now, I'm just hoping that this shortage will be short-lived and we can maintain adequate supplies in the meantime. Now we have another example with alcohol, um, and that's phenobarbital, the elixir of which has a 15% alcohol content. So again, remember that we said we didn't want any more than 5%. Unfortunately, the population that often uses this medication is those who are most at risk. Premature infants with concurrent apnea prematurity, and potentially concomitant opioid withdrawal. Compounding recipes are available and some hospitals choose to compound in order to avoid the risks of the elixir. Compounding, of course, brings its own risks and inconsistencies. One safety consideration would be to avoid giving your loading dose of 20 milligram per kilo as the elixir. So for example, a dose for a two kilo infant would be 40 milligrams, which is 10 milliliters of the elixir or about the equivalent of three beers for an adult, which is also added to the safety, I'm sorry, the sedating effect of the drug itself. Um, and of course, our final recommendation here would be to build that warning in the EMR um, to help with this. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.